As has already been mentioned on more than one occasion this morning, how good it is for us to be able to come together. I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist in the long, long ago, but it seems so amazingly pertinent for you and me today. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Though day by day the world and the culture in which we live may present such disappointment, discouragement, and such bad news, it is a brightness on the weekly horizon to come together with those of like precious faith, to open the blessed pages of the Word of God, and to find within it the nourishment and sustenance for our spirit, our immortal and eternal spirit within us. So much so that Job could say in the days of the long past in Job 23:12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. What an amazing statement. And as that may be a guide for you and me over the next few moments this morning, might we consider a lesson that I've entitled, The Resurrection. There are many aspects that one could consider related to the resurrection. One could, in fact, speak about, as no doubt many did last Lord's Day, the resurrection of Jesus. Many a sermon, no doubt, preached last Sunday, it being Easter Sunday, about that topic and subject. Rather, you might remember that we focused on a different lesson then. And even today, the primary thrust of our lesson will not be the resurrection of Jesus. It will be our resurrection. And so it is to that topic I would invite you to turn with me over the next few moments this morning. By way of introduction, think with me, if you would, about how often the Bible testifies to the reality of eternity. You and I live, of course, bound in the flesh, at least at this point in time. We are able to see the fleshly, earthly, carnal things about us. We are conditioned to think about time-limited affairs in the sense that eternity is hard for you and me to fully grasp and comprehend now. We are used to things wearing out and coming to an end and a new age or a new era begins. But the Bible so often speaks about an era, a realm of existence that is timeless. It shall never, ever end. We often use that word eternity. And in the very last verse of Matthew 25, our Savior expressly made note that there are those on his right hand for whom it would be said, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, everlasting life. Eternal life would be theirs. But in that very same verse, to those on his left, he used almost identical language in saying, eternal punishment shall be yours. You see, Jesus spoke easily about the fact that there's coming a realm of existence in which you and I shall know that really is eternal. It shall never end and it shall never cease. This morning, I would ask you to think with me about the character of that resurrection that will lead to that eternal realm of existence. For after all, that's what the resurrection and why it is so important. It is that moment of transition, that event that carries one from the reality of this to the reality of that. No wonder the Bible so often speaks about the resurrection. If you and I are ever to enjoy heaven, there must be one. We must involve ourselves in it. It must come our way. And thus, let us think today about the resurrection Many questions no doubt come to mind about it. What is a resurrection? That is a word that admittedly isn't used so awful much today. What is it, first of all? Secondly, when will it occur? Perhaps thirdly, what will happen? In essence, what will it be like? Perhaps finally, after the resurrection has occurred, what will the body be like? 
In what sense can we speak about the nature of existence and the appreciation of things after that resurrection has taken place? This morning, as we look at each of these matters, primarily our emphasis will run in that same order. We'll begin by trying to define, using the Holy Scriptures, about the character of that resurrection. Then the latter part of the lesson, striving to appreciate what will it be like, and furthermore, what about that body that you and I will have. As we begin all of that, consider the following meanings and definitions about resurrection. It is an interesting word. The word resurrection as it comes to you and me in English derives from a Latin word that simply means to rise again. And it's true that there are instances in the English language in which you can speak about resurrecting a cause or for a thing or an object to ultimately come back to prominence when once it was lifeless and dead. Thus you can speak about resurrection in that way. But please note that Webster's Dictionary does hone our thinking when it notes for us that it is a rising from the dead. As you and I thus speak about the character of the resurrection, we may be more interested in what the Greek New Testament defines it as. That word that it so often occurs, and it does occur over 40 times in the New Testament Greek, that word that's translated resurrection, it is the word anastasis, and it does mean precisely arising from the dead. And thus, the Bible testifies on many occasions, both directly and indirectly, that there shall be this resurrection arising from the dead. Now, you and I, as we contemplate that application to you and me, those questions we asked earlier, in fact, so quickly come to mind. But let's notice also in characterizing the resurrection... We've reached that point in the lesson when it would do us well, it seems to me, to place it chronologically where it shall occur. As mentioned earlier, you and I are conditioned to recognize that in this flesh, we will not last eternally. This flesh will die. So often our own experience testifies to that reality, doesn't it? We see our dear friends and loved ones and those whom we've cherished, they too shall meet the certain appointment of death. And you and I are not exempt either. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, the famous words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 9.27, we might notice that the Holy Spirit chose to use the word appointed. That means this is not an affair or an event which one can schedule around. It is an absolute certain appointment that all of us shall meet if the Lord shall delay His coming. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. But the very nature and character of that death immediately raises the issue then. What is it that transpires on that occasion? You and I have noted in earlier lessons and even in Bible studies the fact that death is not the end of existence. In fact, you and I are immortal spirits. In essence, that is the character and fundamental nature of who and what we are. That spirit happens to be clothed in this fleshly body for a while. However, it is at the instant and moment of death that that spirit departs the body. And that's the inspired testimony of James 2.26. For the body without the spirit is dead. James did not say the spirit ceases to exist. It merely departs the body. 
And thus it is at the moment of death that the spirit departing the body means that the body itself is dead. We each realize that those bodies that are dead, we bury. It is an easy fact, not only from biblical testimony, but even in our recognized age, that that body begins its deterioration. Notice what God told Adam far back in Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, until thou return unto the dust. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Later, the inspired writer, the wise man Solomon, stated in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 20, that all shall return into the dust. Thus, we appreciate that all of that makes good sense then, doesn't it? When the spirit departs the body, the body being buried precedes its return into the dust, those chemical elements out of which it's made. But we have not addressed where does the spirit go and what happens to it? As you can appreciate with me, that spirit, again, does not cease to be. In fact, that spirit resides in a place the scriptures call Hades. Over and again, the Bible testifies and consider just an example or two. After all, in Luke the 16th chapter, when Lazarus and the, wife and the rich man both had died, where was it that they lifted up their eyes? One was in torments, indeed. One was in Abraham's bosom or paradise, if you will. But the point is, they were each in a place. Their spirits had not ceased to be. Now, their bodies had been buried because they were dead. But the, the two, the Lazarus on the one hand, rich man on the other, were still as conscious and aware as ever. Later on, when our blessed Savior was crucified at Calvary, we remember that he also, his body was buried, but what about his spirit? The inspired Peter affirmed for us in Acts 2, verses 27 to 32, that his spirit, in fact, was not left, but rather in Hades it was. Thus, we learn that there is this realm of disembodied spirits, a place where the spirit goes, and there it awaits something. The question that perhaps is easy to be asked once the body is buried, the spirit having departed it and now in Hades, question, will there ever come a time when the spirit will re-inhabit the body so that the body can rise and thus again be alive? In essence, will there ever be a resurrection? That's the point of our lesson today. Will there ever come a time when that body will again have the spirit indwelling within it and thus be able to rise, a rising from the dead, as the word resurrection means? And the Bible overwhelmingly affirms the answer to that question is yes. There will come a time, there will be an event, in which that body, though lifeless and dead, it'll spirit will be re-inhabited, indwelling it again, and there will be a resurrection. As you notice on that screen that I've placed, notice some further thoughts that we can consider about the teaching of Jesus and of Paul toward this point. I've listed some of these texts for your consideration. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to John, as Jesus spoke and interacted with several Jewish leaders and Jewish individuals of that day, he very pointedly said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, 
they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Those were the words of our Savior. As he spoke about the nature of life and of death and of life after death, he says, there is no reason to marvel for I'm telling you. The hour is coming when all that are in the graves, those bodies that are now dead, all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and they shall come forth. The Lord clearly taught the reality of a resurrection, didn't he? But notice also the teaching of Paul on this same point. In Acts 23, verse number 6, as Paul gave his defense before the Sanhedrin court, he very clearly said, Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Paul stated as a fact, didn't he? He didn't say, I suppose, or I think, or I gather. He said, Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question this day. One chapter later, in Acts 24, 15, as he there stood also defending himself before Tertullus, the Jews, and even Felix, we are left to appreciate that one more time he says there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. These New Testament characters by inspiration affirmed so powerfully and easily that there will be a resurrection. You and I certainly then cannot doubt that by any stretch of the imagination. Just as certainly as the Bible testifies of other things, things that may be hard for you and me to fathom and imagine, we know they occurred. Perhaps you and I have often imagined what it was like for the Israelites to stand at the brink of a sea that had been divided for them, but it happened. Maybe you and I have often wondered about what it would have been like to have been standing when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus in John 11, but it happened. Yet one more time, maybe you and I have a difficult time imagining this resurrection, but it's going to happen. And thus, maybe we can look at maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible on this subject. It is the one from which we heard our reading a moment ago. In the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gave a dissertation, if you will, on the subject of the resurrection. Some, even to this day, call it the resurrection chapter of the Bible. In 58 scintillating, majestic, potent, direct, and powerful verses, he speaks about the pointed nature of the absolute reality of it and informs us from heaven of some things we can know about it. Let's first notice the first 19 verses of that chapter. We shall not read it in its entirety, but I would ask that you note the unanswerable argument that the inspired apostle presents for the reality of the resurrection. And I've listed in a very brief way the logic that he employs. Perhaps a brief word of historical setting might be beneficial. The Corinthians, at least in part, were dealing with the following problem. There were some in the congregation there who were doubting that there would be a resurrection. False teachers that had come into that area and others who had lifted themselves up had called into question the apostleship of Paul. And not only that, some were even teaching that this matter of a, res of a resurrection was just Paul's opinion. It was an absolute heaven-inspired fact. And to that, Paul answers this, Gentlemen, brethren, if, Christ, if there is no resurrection, then the first thing that's true, Christ was not raised. What a powerful line of logic. He says, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised. However, if Jesus wasn't raised, notice what else follows. 
the preaching that you have heard us deliver, it had to be in vain because we preached that Jesus was raised. But he still isn't finished. He furthermore says, your faith must also be vain because when we came into Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, we preach the truth of the gospel and that's what you received. And hence, note the inspired logic. If there is no resurrection, then number one, Jesus was not raised. Number two, our preaching is in vain. Number three, your faith is in vain. Number four, we as apostles must be false witnesses. We had to have been liars if we preached that Christ was raised, but really he wasn't. Not only that, if Christ wasn't raised, that same message of the gospel that I preached unto you and that was delivered, it spoke about release from sin, delivery from it by virtue of Christ's blood. If we lied about the resurrection of Jesus, maybe we lied about that too. In other words, you're still in your sin. And if that be true, you're destined to perish just as those who are already dead. In other words, Paul says, if the resurrection was a myth, if there is no such thing as it, then this life in all points is nothing more than misery. Perhaps verse 19 summarizes it well. If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. If there is no hope that can carry me and you beyond the grave, if there is no confident assurance and reality that the grave is not the end, this life is nothing but misery, patheticness, and disappointment. But yet, the breath of fresh air begins in verse 20 because you'll notice that Paul, with logic, an unanswerable logic at that, has asserted there is a resurrection. There is to be this thing known as a rising from the dead. And the very first word in verse 20 is the word but. We understand how that that is a very carefully chosen word so often. It strikes a transition between that which was discussed and the brighter thing that's to follow. He has just convinced them that there is a resurrection. And in doing so, he has asserted the misery of what there is if there's not. Now he says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. The logic that he has just presented directly leads to that conclusion. There is a resurrection, friends. Christ was raised, and furthermore, he was the first fruits of all that shall come after. Immediately, to our mind, conjures up the thought in the Old Testament. Remember, the children of Israel were commanded to offer a first fruit offering to God. What was the point? The first fruit offering was the very first of the harvested crop and the whole idea was it served as a promise of the God of heaven for the grand harvest to follow. Same principle. Christ was the first fruits. In other words, he was the first resurrected to life never to die again. However, as the first fruits, he was then the guarantee of God that there will be a general harvest of resurrection to follow. And that includes all of us. Thus, there shall be this general resurrection at the appropriate time as decided by the God of heaven. Can we con continue on, though, and notice some of those other questions? It is for certain that not every minute detail about the character and the exact specifics are delivered to you and me. But there's enough information, enough of our questions answered to provide great hope, great confidence, and great assurance. In fact, let us notice the timing of it. 
we are given in the scriptures the information about the timing of when that resurrection will occur. In fact, I would ask that you notice with me the inspired words of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. But the Lord shall descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And there we have it. The Lord shall descend. That's what will start the proceedings. You see, the general resurrection awaits the time of our Savior's second coming. The thing is, we do not know the date of when that shall be. In fact, Jesus expressly stated in Matthew 24 that no man knoweth the time of the Savior's second coming. Not the angels, in fact, at that time not even the Son, but the Father only. Jesus made that statement in Mark 13, 32. Thus, this general resurrection will await the time that the Lord shall descend. Isn't it interesting that in Revelation 1 verse 5, it says, Every eye shall see him. No matter if a person's been dead a thousand years, it will make no difference. Every eye shall see him. At the time our blessed Savior descends, it will be no secretive event. Notice it says, With a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, it won't be silent. When Jesus descends, he immediately makes note then that, that the events of that resurrection will take place. To that text, we might mention the one we'd noted briefly earlier in John 5, where there again Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Thus, these events are describing these texts the same set of things, the same set of events. The amazing features then are this. When Jesus determines or when he descends. We can appreciate then that as time reaches its end, this general resurrection will take place. Those that are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come forth. That means there will be a resurrection. Hades will be emptied. Those spirits will leave the Hadean realm. As such, they will again inhabit bodies that are provided for them. And those bodies will be the very ones as we're about to see that are the ones that were buried those bodies will come forth and they shall experience a change. What about those that happen to be alive when Jesus returns? Will they have an advantage? Will it be such that they'll have time, for example, to obey the gospel if they haven't done so at that point? Paul quickly answers, verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, In the twinkling of an eye, they shall be changed. There will be no advantage per se to those who may still be alive when the Savior returns. They will be changed momentarily, instantly, in the twinkling of an eye. As all of these things are stated, we notice that the dead in Christ shall rise first. As they rise, we quickly note that those who will be changed instantly, the faithful, they all shall rise to meet the Lord in the air and evermore be with Him. We can only imagine the smiles on the faces of those that rise to meet the Lord in the air. You see, we all want to be a part of that number. We all want to be a, one of that group that marches into the eternal portals of heaven by virtue of being found faithful at the resurrection. However, notice that all, both wicked and good, shall be raised. As we can appreciate the judgment then quickly will follow. That scene in Matthew chapter 25 where the goats or those recognized as goats are then stated or placed on the left. The righteous are placed on the right and Jesus addresses each one in turn. That's the very scene that will now take place. 
as that division occurs. Those on the left, those on the right, each hearing the sentence, depart from me or enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. With each passing instant, we can imagine the terror that will fill the hearts of those on the left. And we can also imagine the gladness that will fill the hearts of those on the right. We all, of course, want to be a part of those on the right. We want to be right with God. We want to have lived faithfully to the cause of His Son. And we want to be a part then of that resurrection of the just, Jesus addressed in John 5, 28. For you see, to be a part of that resurrection of damnation is too horrible to contemplate. At this point, having talked a bit about the character of the timing, what about some other specifics the Bible may reveal? What about the nature of that body? that resurrected body. Brother John read for us a few moments ago from verses 35 to 58 in 1 Corinthians 15. And again, this is the text that gives us the most detail about what that resurrected body will be like. I would ask that you notice a few thoughts with me. We'll not reread that since it was read again for us a few moments earlier. But beginning in verse 35, the very same questions that may fill our mind are those which Paul addresses. He says, But some man will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Here's the inspired discussion. Here's the inspired revelation concerning the answers to those two questions. He begins in verse 36 by noting, so amazingly and powerfully, that there are different types of bodies. To bring this point close to home for you and me, we are aware of this physical body. We can touch it and feel it and maintain its sustenance with physical food and other matters like that. But Paul has quickly affirmed that there are different types and kinds of bodies, and he quickly lists several of them. And in particular, he notes the spiritual body. And as he makes note of that fact, in verses 41 and following, he expressly notes that the body that is sown is the body that's raised. In fact, let's read that text, beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It, that is that body, is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Notice how often the word it is employed and the antecedent of that pronoun is the same in every instance. In other words, the very same body that's buried is the body that's going to be raised. Now to you and me, that may seem impossible. Those who've been dead a thousand or more years, their bodies have long since decayed. But remember, the omnipotent God is at work here. That body can be reconstituted and changed to whatever form the... Almighty God of heaven desires to give it. And that's Paul's point. That body that is sown is the body that will be raised. But he isn't finished. For he goes on to say that that body that's sown is physical. It's this one with which we are familiar. Not only is it physical, in verses 48 and 49 he calls it earthy. It's carnal. But notice that body that's raised is spiritual. He calls it heavenly. It is a different type of body. And thus, we shouldn't think that it's exactly like the one that we now have. In addition to that, 
Notice that he clearly says in verse 50 that that one that's raised is not composed of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is a part of this physical, earthly regime in the here and now, but that's not suitable for heaven. Furthermore, notice as the text in verses 51 and following indicate, this body that we now have is corruptible. That one that's fit for eternity is incorruptible. And thus, that body that's raised will have an incorruptible character. And what a beautiful thought. Notice, that one cannot be brought to corruption, deterioration, decay. It can't be tarnished or marred. It's incorruptible. And that's the very point of how he closes and finishes it. For after all, the victory that's ours, verses 54 to 58, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The victory that apparently was true in the grave, that all who are alive seem to end up there. Paul says that victory is to be had only in Christ, for that general resurrection will empty those graves. And what's more, verses 56 and following, thanks be unto God, which giveth us the glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we've discussed these parts about the body, perhaps we might note two other texts that seem to enter this discussion so powerfully. First is in Philippians 3, verse 21, where there we read that we shall in fact have the vileness of this body removed when the Lord returns and we experience the character of the body not unlike the one that he had in his resurrection. To state that yet again, the Apostle John discussed the same idea in 1 John 3, verses 1, 2, and 3, where there he said, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. His context was clearly the resurrected Jesus. We shall be like him. Well, what was he like? What was the Lord's resurrected body like? Here's some things for your consideration. Notice amongst those texts that we could list, Jesus' raised body was recognizable. In fact, isn't it fascinating that here was one who, in fact, had been crucified, placed in the tomb of that rich man. But not only that, when he was raised, he was recognizable. Thus, we shouldn't perceive then that in the resurrection, we won't be recognizable to anybody. In fact, in Luke 24, verse 16, it expressly notes that on the road to Emmaus, those two disciples had their eyes holden. That is, providentially protected from recognizing him. Otherwise, they would have recognized him. Later on, we can perceive the same thing in John 20, verse 27. When Jesus appeared with Thomas and the other apostles, they knew who he was. They recognized the marks on his body. Thus, we can see a degree of recognition in that resurrected body. But not only that, that raised body was spiritual. Let me amplify just a bit what I mean by using that word. Paul had already identified that raised body as spiritual. But we notice in John 20 that that body is able to do things that a physical body can't. Notice the two texts I've listed, Luke 24, 31, and also John chapter 20. First, the Luke text. Here again on that road to Emmaus, when they reached the destination, what was it that happened to Jesus? He vanished. 
A physical body can't just disappear into thin air. It can't just vanish, but the Lord did. And perhaps even to emphasize that further, in John chapter 20, it expressly notes that the apostles were gathered in a room and the door was locked. How did Jesus get in? You see, a spiritual body is not constrained or restrained by the thoughts of this physical realm. He could pass through a wall or a ceiling. The door was locked and yet the text says the Lord appeared and they didn't open the door to let Him in. You see, a spiritual body is not then restrained by the character of this physical realm. That's what we mean by this spiritual character that that body has. But in addition to that, we notice in Luke 24 verses 39 and following that Jesus made a powerful argument that when He appeared to them, He did appear in a fashion that appeared to be physical, though if we've, as we've just seen, He wasn't. He had characteristics that allowed him to do things that a physical body simply cannot do. To look at all of these, we notice then that that body that's raised is a spiritual body. We may not have all the answers about it that we'd like, but we have seen enough that tantalizes us to appreciate what it will be like and to experience it and to know it. Because you see, we each shall be a part of it when that day and that time comes. Needless to say, the resurrection is a very important biblical doctrine. There are many in our world who would downplay the resurrection because for them, they think that they're looking for a millennium here on earth, in the flesh. And that's why to them the resurrection is not important. But dear friend, there will never be a millennium on this earth where Christ sits on a throne in Jerusalem. The Bible nowhere teaches that. But what it does teach is that when Christ returns, His reign as King will end, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Following that, then, the judgment and eternity in heaven or hell will be the lot of everyone. In fact, in terms of emphasizing its importance, in 2 Timothy 1, Paul even noted that there were some who greatly erred because they taught that the resurrection had passed already. For them, it was not something to look forward to. It wasn't something to appreciate yet in the future. And Paul said they have greatly erred. To those in our world today who per pervert the character of the resurrection and misteach it and abuse it, they too greatly err. Forever, if we are to enter heaven, we must enjoy that resurrection, be a part of it and experience it, and we need to be among those on the right-hand side of our Savior. For we would like to be like He is. And in that resurrection, we will have that incorruptible body fit for an eternity. At this point in time, if we draw our lesson to a conclusion this Lord's Day morning, that general resurrection is a certainty. The principal question for you and me is, of which resurrection will it be? Will you be among those resurrected to life? Or will you be among those resurrected to damnation? As I mentioned, the latter is too horrible to contemplate. The former is too joyous to describe. But the decision does rest with you and me. We have within our confines and our ability that which we need to make certain that we're a part of the resurrection of the just. Have you obeyed the gospel? Are you a Christian? Are you a faithful Christian? You need to have your sins washed away. Only then can you realize that that incorruptible body prepared for heaven will be yours. Believe upon Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, those things that have distanced you from God. 
confess His grand name as your Savior, and then be buried, immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in doing that today, it'd be our honor. If you have become a Christian at some former time in life, but you've allowed Satan to gain the upper hold in your life, you've allowed him to direct and dictate to the point that the resurrection is not something you look forward to anymore, Make a change today. Come back to your first love. Give Satan a quick exit from your life and place Jesus again on the throne. He is, after all, King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. Today, if we could assist anyone in your public response to the gospel, let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.